1: Welcome to the Moisture Festival podcast. We are your hosts for this amazing podcast. The man across the way from me is the fantastic Louis Fox, who is a comedy magician who performs worldwide and at the Moisture Festival.
0: Hey, I'm Louis. And then man across from me is Mr. Matthew Baker. He is a comedy juggler who travels around the world doing a show. And guess what? At The Moisture Festival. Occasionally,
1: I do. And if you're new to the Moisture Festival podcast or the Moisture Festival in general, the Moisture Festival is a four-week festival celebrating the genre of variety arts in the Fremont neighborhood of Seattle.
0: It is the largest festival of its kind in the world and features some of the best entertainers and comedians working today.
1: Absolutely. The festival happens in the months of March and April, normally, with some sporadic sprinkling of special events throughout the year, and they are even traveling into the world of virtual shows. I like to think of
0: the special events throughout the year as sprinkles on a
1: donut. Yeah. They have uh, comedians, jugglers, magicians, clowns, every time type of performing genre you can think of including a week of burlesque shows
0: in addition to all that they have performing arts venues you didn't know were possible it's
1: true and if you want to get tickets folks if you're listening to this during the fe- the months of march and april you can get tickets at Festival. .org. And get them, because 95% of the shows sell out. And on this podcast today, we are very excited to have Mike Caveney joining us over the phone. We're going to talk about his history
0: as a magician and as a juggler.
1: Yeah, he's been performing for over 40 years, and we hear stuff like how to smuggle a chicken and onto an airplane, how his wife is more famous than him in South America, and we even get a history of the trick of sawing a woman in half.
0: Spoiler alert. She lives.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is a fantastic interview, and I wish we had more time. Honestly, we could have done a couple more hours with Mike. Definitely. So let's get to the interview, Louis. Let's do it. Today's guest has performed professionally for over 40 years. He has appeared on The Tonight Show, where he impressed Betty White, was voted Stage Magician of the Year by the Magic Castle, and has published over 50 books. He has performed everywhere from Japan to Russia, from Monte Carlo to Borneo, from West Duluth to East Duluth. Let's welcome Mike Caveney. Woo! Woo! Yay! Thanks for joining us, Mike. I can't follow that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did Betty White respond to you?
2: She was delighted. You know what? It's very easy to delight Betty White. <laughs> she was very, very old and could not have been nicer. So oh. I did my coffee jugglings. And I, here, here's my story on that. <clears throat> they asked me to do this, and I thought, you know, this is – I was actually terrified because, you know, this is a TV studio, and that means every square inch up above you has light fixtures in it. Yeah. <laughs> And if there's some bright light shining in my eye, I can't see this thing. And if I can't see it, I can't catch it. Yep. I was going to say real quick, if you what? didn't
0: catch Mike at the Moisture Festival a couple of years ago, his coffee juggling, what he's talking about, he has a big uh, wooden hoop or hoop and a cup of coffee that he spins around.
2: Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. And I throw it up in the air about 10 feet. And then <laughs> it spins around three times and I catch it. So it was really scary. and And I called the guy – uh, the producer guy, and he he couldn't have been nicer. He said, "Well, look, why don't you pick a day? Come on over in the afternoon, and we'll stand you right where you're going to be, and you can look up and see what you're going to see." So I did, and I I went over there, and it's still pretty scary. Um, you know, this is going all across the country, and it's you know it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then the guy said, "Don't worry." look, if you drop it, we're just going to keep rolling and fill it up again (laughs) and throw it again, and we'll just cut the first one out. No one will know it. We'll clean the coffee
1: off of Betty White.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And uh, it felt like the weight of the world had been lifted from my shoulders. And at that point, I said, don't worry, I'm not going to miss. Because all the pressure had been removed, so it went great. I would love for when
1: you show up to the show, it's completely different than when you actually did. Whenever. Oh my
2: God, I know.
0: Well, that happened to me on a Guinness World Record show, but that's another story.
1: Because <laughs> you're not just a magician. I mean, you do you know, what we just talked about, the hoop spinning. You do some juggling. Um, you sort of do a variety. You're like a real variety show.
2: So I am a magician, but you're right. I've always been interested in juggling. And um, I have a nice little library of juggling books. And I would never tell this to my magic buddies. I'm much happier watching a show of jugglers than of magicians. (laughs) I really, really like juggling. and. I've always had one juggling piece in my act, and decades ago, it was this three-arm juggling routine that I did.
1: Yeah, I just watched that video, actually. It's great.
2: Oh, you did? Yeah. So that was my big finish for a long time. And, uh, and then uh, I replaced that with this pair of scissors getting pushed through a spectator's coat and dumping a whole bunch of silverware out of his coat and then producing a live chicken. So that became the end of my act. But I opened my act then with the coffee juggling thing. Yeah, it's so you're right. I did do that up at the uh, moisture festival.
1: Well, what about juggling? Do you like to watch more than magic? Because, I mean, I've heard your name for years associated with the magic world. Like, is there something that you like about the sort of genre of juggling? Uh,
2: Yeah, here's here's the big difference. I don't know if everybody knows this or cares about this, but. As a magician, we spend our whole life practicing and practicing and practicing. And what we're practicing is to make sure that the audience doesn't see what it is we're doing. When When we do it perfectly, they don't see any of it. And they're amazed and amused. And a juggler spends his whole life practicing, and then they get up on the stage and they show the audience everything they've been working on. And the audience says, oh, my God, you're unbelievable. That's so skillful. And w- with a magician, they go, well, I don't know how that works. And <laughs> yeah. that's because they have no idea what we've been practicing.
0: Yeah, so me, uh, Louie, I'm a magician, and Matt is a comedy juggler. Yeah. So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I feel your pain about this. It is, yeah. it,
1: it is a fascinating thing that to practice, practice, and practice. And then the thing that you're practicing is the thing that the, the audience is not supposed to see.
2: That's right. And then we hide it.
1: That's crazy. (laughs) I can imagine that would have a psychological toll. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I don't know. Um, I've never understood that when I was nine years old, I got interested in magic and have been interested ever since. And many, many kids get a little magic set for Christmas or get a trick for their birthday or something. And, they play around with it for a little while, and then they move on and um, but the people that I know had that very same experience, and they they never put it down it it was has been with them for their entire life. There's nothing they would rather do than be a magician. Uh, they almost don't care how much money they make as long as they can be a magician yeah so it is quite amazing to me that why some kids. Get grabbed like that, and and most don't.
1: Yeah, was there a certain book or set that you were given as a kid? That no,
2: when I when I was nine, my cousin gave me a little tiny set of multiplying billiard balls, and he showed me the trick, and I was floored. And then he said, "Well, here, I don't need this. You can have it." And he gave it to me. <laughs> I mean, at that moment, I could see this path. Laid out in front of me, <laughs> that extended open. to the end of my life, I would never veer from this path. <laughs> and and I remember, in you know, in high school, I was on the the track team and the cross country team, and you know, I enjoyed running. I still go running. And uh, but if there was a conflict between magic and anything else, uh, track meter, it was always magic took preference. Wow high school diploma. When I was in college, <laughs> you talk about a crazy story. Listen to this. I was in college and I thought, I, you know, I can't imagine how do, I don't even know how you be a magician. I mean, this was in another time back in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what, maybe a fireman would be a good idea because I, every fireman I know, they've got a whole other deal going on because oh, yeah. firemen have so much time off. So I actually went down and I took the physical agility test to become a fireman. And after I passed it, the guy said, okay, on Saturday, you're going to come in and we interview you. Mm -hmm. And I said, Oh, on Saturday, I'm busy. I can't come in. (laughs) He says, yeah, on Saturday, you'll come in and we'll, I said, look, I'm a magician. I'm doing a show that morning so I can come any other time. And they said, if you want to be a fireman, You'll come in on Saturday. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I went and did my show, and I earned $35 and never regretted it.
0: <laughs> now, you've had a weird path through magic, though, right? Because you were a builder of props, and then a, a historian and an author. It's w- not a linear, like, I got my first magic kit, I did shows, and I do shows.
2: You just compressed about 50 years into one <laughs> sentence. Um, <laughs> That's what I do. So it was actually a pretty normal thing. I mean, I was a magic kid. I was doing birthday parties, and two there were two, two or three really important things that happened to me. First of all, I grew up in Southern California, and you know when I looked in the yellow pages back then, I found uh, under Magic Shop, I found a place called Owen Magic Supreme,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it was in it was about seven miles from my house, so I rode my bicycle there. And I went in and it, it was filled, the shelves were filled with the most beautiful magic you've ever seen in your life. And I thought, oh, I guess all magic shops are like this. <laughs> well, eventually I would find out that no magic shops were like that except for Owen Magic. They were world famous for manufacturing the most beautiful magic in the world. Oh,
1: wow.
2: So that was really amazing. And I ended up. Kind of working there part time and getting paid with apparatus, and so that was a really great thing that happened to me. And the other thing was, I found in Long Beach, California, a teenage magic club called the Long Beach Mystics. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I had a driver's license, because I grew up in Arcadia, about oh, twenty-five miles from there, as soon as I got a driver's license and I could drive to Long Beach, I joined this club. And it was a bunch of teenage guys, exactly my age, and were all crazy to be magicians. And they all became my best friends. And 50 years later, they are still my best <laughs> friends, and we still <laughs> all hang out together, and and oftentimes do shows together. And uh, that was a great, great training ground. And and amazingly, some some the list of people that started out in the Long Beach Mystics and today are known around the world as magicians is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. Now I would imagine, you know, cause now magic is pretty prevalent in popular society. There's Netflix, Hulu shows. Um, I would yeah. imagine in the early seventies, was there any prominent magicians that were out there that was mm-hmm. accessible to
2: you? Here's the reality of it in the early sixties, when I was just getting started into magic, there was Mark Wilson's Magic Land of Alakazam on Saturday morning television. Oh. That was it. <laughs> and I did, I kind of never performed at school. Uh, most of my friends, they didn't even know I was really into magic because it was about the m- most uncool thing that you could be. Uh, interesting. So, I mean, I was a closeted magician. <laughs> and there were... There were no outlets. I mean, that's why this Long Beach Mystics Club was, was so great, because here were guys that did think it was cool. Yeah, It was the, the 1950s and the 1960s were the absolute worst decades of the 20th <laughs> century for magic. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And then in 1974, Doug Henning opened on Broadway in the magic show. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, magic was cool. Uh, big, big magazines were doing big articles about Doug Henning. And then Doug did his first TV live TV special and everybody in America watched it. And, you know, now by that time they did know I was into magic and they, you know, they say, Hey, did you see this guy? Do you know how that stuff works? Yeah. And all of a sudden now I'm cool because I know Doug Henning and I know about magic
0: Ah.
2: and, and it just took off from there. That's after that, David Copperfield came along, and and both David and Doug did a big TV special every year, and and the magic boom started, and it it kind of never ended. Now, when you
1: told your friends that you were a magician, were they like, we had our suspicions?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um. They didn't pay much attention. really. <laughs> I mean, I didn't make a big deal out of it and they didn't make a big deal out of it. So yeah, once I got into the long beach mystics, uh, those guys really did become my friends. And I'd drive down to long beach every weekend and stay over at my buddy's house. And every year we did a big show and we we had contests and there was a magician convention out here on the West coast, the PCAM. And mm-hmm. we'd enter the contest or do a show at that. And, so we were doing our own thing. And at that point, it didn't matter what anybody else thought. We were having the most fun of all.
0: Yeah, I bet. Now, was there a mentorship involved
2: in the Long Beach Mystics? Most teenage manager clubs have adult supervision. Mm-hmm. And the Long Beach Mystics, I think they, they kind of started out that way, but eventually they didn't. And the the club was for kids from like eight years old to 20 years old. And then, theoretically, you were supposed to graduate from the Teenage Magic Club <laughs> and join the International Brotherhood of Magicians, mm-hmm. like graduated to the big kids. Well, the Mystics had no interest in joining the IBM. We had everything we wanted in the Mystics. So as one generation of members grew up and matured and grew older, they would kind of mentor the, the next generation. Ah round of kids that were coming in and then they would grow up and so this club started in 1955 and it was around i don't know i wonder when it ended it ended around 19 late 70s 1980 and the reason it did and it was the writing was on the wall the magic castle started a teenage uh junior mm-hmm. club mm-hmm and and we said you know what there's no way you compete with that yeah where they have their their meetings at the magic castle and they they have the library and they have lecturers coming in and you know we're a bunch of ragtag kids you know <laughs> meeting wherever we can hey
1: but free babysitting
2: <laughs> yeah So that was kind of it. Anybody that came along then, they joined the Castle Jr. group.
0: So you mentioned like the library at the Magic Castle that the juniors had access to. At what point in your path did you become like a magic historian?
2: That kind of sneaks up on you. Um, You know, when I was young, learning to be a magician, you know, I'd buy lots of books and read them, and, and I subscribed to magic magazines, and I enjoyed all of that. And somewhere along the line, as I would go to conventions and stuff, I would find old, old magic books. And they were beautiful, and I really liked them, and I liked reading about what these old magicians did in their acts. And I don't think at the time I was trying to be a historian. I was trying to say, hey, I wonder if there's anything that those guys did that I might be able to use in my act. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, when I look at my act today, uh i can trace virtually everything in it back to some old guy not that he was doing exactly my routine but the genesis of the idea came you know was done previously ah so it was just a great research thing and i think as time went on i just found these old magicians to be really fascinating and i found the history of vaudeville to be very interesting So then it just starts from there. You buy more books, and then I started collecting posters, and then I started collecting photographs and letters. And I'm interested in paper, not really apparatus. I kind of like everything paper.
1: Is there a a possession, a historical uh, possession that you have that you're most excited about?
2: Well, here's what happened. The year 2000, uh, the, the oldest magic museum in America, which was called Egyptian Hall Museum... It was down in Tennessee. It had started in 1895, and I knew the guy that owned it, and I had been to visit him, and it was, it was the largest collection of magic posters in the world, and it was a library, and apparatus, and file cabinets full of ephemera. And the guy that owned it died, and uh, his son sold it to me and a friend of mine, 5050 oh, wow. 50, 50 Partners. <clears throat> so, in one day, I and my friend acquired five tons of paper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your wife was quite excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, that was that was life-changing, really. And uh, with all of this wealth of material that had been collected over 100 years. So, now, as I... And especially, you know, the last show I did was... March of 2000 in Madrid, Spain. And we got home from this month of shows over there. And then the, the lockdown happened. So we've been sitting at home ever since. Mm-hmm. And the whole time we've been locked down, I'm wondering, I wonder if I'm retired. Yeah. Um, <laughs> both Tina and I are really busy at home and we've got all kinds of projects going on. And I have to say, I mean, after traveling around the world for 50 years, I don't I feel like I've done a lot and maybe enough and maybe I don't have to keep doing that as long as I'm happy and busy at home. I
0: think the the lockdown or the pandemic has had a lot of performers go I think it's it's
1: time. Well, it's opening <laughs> their eyes to the fact that hey this is li- this life at home's not too bad. <laughs>
2: Yep, I know it. <laughs>
1: have you ever thought about like opening a museum, like the one that went out of business and sort of showcasing the history of magic with all your possessions and knowledge that you have?
2: So here's the deal. I have it set up in my house. Uh, we have a big old house here and I have a little museum and a library. But what I've learned is that the general public doesn't care one iota about any of this stuff. hmm But there are magicians, not all, but many magicians who are very interested in it. And they're all welcome to come. And uh so we have people come over and I spend hours showing them through stuff and we have a great time. Oh, that's amazing. This is the best
0: podcast we've done because I'm passing through this summer. Oh, look at that.
1: (laughs) He's vaccinated. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Absolutely. The door is open. Oh now you are married to a very talented woman who is also a magician. Who's the most famous magician in the family, you or your wife?
2: Well, that's a good question, too. When I when I go to Europe or to South America, they say, oh, this is Tina Leonard, and this is her husband, <laughs> and I'm the guy that carries the suitcase, because <laughs> Tina is really well known, especially in Latin America, because she speaks Spanish, and her act is very emotional, and uh, like the Latin Americans are, and... Mm. And she's done a lot of work in Europe because it's a silent act and she can work anywhere in the world. So she's appeared on many, many television shows and stage shows all over Europe. So yeah. And it's a unique act. And so in most of the world, yes, it's Tina. And it's funny, (laughs) Tina, Tina's afraid that someday the magic police are going to come here and they're going to go, Wait a minute. You're not really a magician and they're going to take away her stage magician of the year award that she won at the Magic Castle. Because she, you know, she I spend I can spend a week sitting in my library looking at old magic books. And she, you know, she doesn't read magic books and yeah. she doesn't she just does her act and and um you know, loves doing it and uh but she's not that Kid that grew up like I did as yeah. a young magician, and but she came from the mime world. Yeah,
0: you don't just read magic books; like you recreate historical magic tricks, right?
2: Yeah, um, I've done a lot of that uh, for many years. John Gone and Jim Steinmeier and I put on a thing called the Los Angeles Conference on Magic History, and this was a thing for historians and collectors, and we would usually each usually pick some old illusion or trick that hasn't been seen in a hundred years. Sometimes we would be lucky and get the original apparatus. Other times we'd have to build it from scratch and we'd, we'd kind of think about this and, and get it back on its feet and figure out the routine and the patter and record some music and, and then spend weeks rehearsing it with some friends. And then for one night, perform it at our conference. Wow. <laughs> That's a and, lot uh, of work. <laughs> it's uh, it's crazy, really. And uh, the only thing that made it worthwhile, some of these old illusions, we've been able to perform at the Magic Castle for a week or so. Ah. And so then a lot of other people get to see it. And we get to, you know, the one night at the conference, it's just ridiculous. It's cool. kind of like the dress rehearsal. Well, it's super cool doing to be able it to... Yeah, we do three shows a week at the castle and, you know, by halfway through the week, we've got it down pretty well (laughs) and it can get much better.
1: It'd be cool just to be able to dive into the history and perform stuff that, you know, hasn't been seen in so long and get all the tools necessary to perform it. Is there anything that was like really hard Mm -hmm. to find? Like the great dodo (laughs) bird escape (laughs) appearance or like this just doesn't
2: exist anymore? yeah there's there's tricks that literally haven't been done for a hundred years and but you know they're described in old books and um and so what I would do is once I focused in on something, I would say, I wonder if this could be improved. I wonder if this was the oh, yeah. the best version or maybe with today's you know modern products could we build this more deceptive or could we think about this and and adapt it or knowing the situation, the physical uh, environment that I'm going to be performing it in, maybe we could uh, change it up and make it a little more amazing. And So yeah, it was a real project to, to bring these things S- to life. Super cool. And a few years ago, I published a book called The Conference Illusions, and it's a big, nice, full-color book that tells the history of the tricks that I did and and the apparatus that I either acquired or built and, and all the thought that went into how we're going to do this. And, and, and it's a full, it's an interesting thing. I mean, nobody, nobody is ever going to perform any of these tricks because they're so (laughs) impractical, (laughs) but it's really fun to to see the process that we went through to, to put them in front of a live audience again. Do you have a favorite one that you've done at one of these conferences? I do have a favorite one. It's called the million dollar mystery. And it was around, it was, uh, it was invented back in the teens of the last century. And in the 1920s, it was kind of a big deal. And it was, uh, it's just the most amazing trick. It's a little box that sits in the middle of the stage and it can kind of do anything. Uh, we produced big, multiple buckets of water out of it. Um, uh, and it, at the very end, we took a big, long five foot long wooden box and pushed it into the side of this little box. And the entire five foot long wooden box went into this little foot square box and wow. kind of disappeared. And then we, the box, the long box that was in there would sort of do a 90 degree turn and we would pull it out through the front of the box. And then we'd stood it up on end and opened up the front and Tina would step out of it. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, And it's, it's just an amazing, amazing trick. Do you have a
0: Holy grail trick or was that it
2: to recreate that for me? That was it. Now I've done other things. In fact, on YouTube, I have a number of them up on YouTube. I did uh, the spirit cabinet that belonged to Carter, the great an old magician back in the twenties and thirties. And I bought his whole show and ended up with his spirit cabinet. Wow. And figured out my own uh, routine and my own method, but we used this 100-year-old prop, and, and that's on YouTube, and it's really, really neat, a really old-fashioned style spirit cabinet.
1: Now, is a, I don't know exactly what a spirit cabinet is. Is it, like, hold alcohol? Is it, like,
2: <laughs> is it... F- no, here's what it is. Back in, starting around the 1880s, 1890s, uh, spiritualism became a huge thing. I mean, a religion. Mm-hmm. And from, uh, the Davenport brothers and Harry Keller and Carter the great and Thurston and Dante, they all did spirit cabinets. So the one that I have that Carter did, it's kind of like a big wardrobe, a big giant wooden cabinet with two big doors that open out in the front. You can see into it.
1: Oh, gotcha.
2: And um, so we sh- we actually assembled this box on stage. It's up on top of a table, and we put the sides up and the front and the back, and put a top on it so everybody knows it's empty. Uh, and then all kinds of crazy things would start happening. Things would be floating around inside, and a chair would f- scoot across it oh, and then flip upside cool. down. And and then I would open the door, and there was a ghost inside of it—a spirit. And, uh, it would float out of the cabinet and then float all the way over the heads of the audience until I told it to stop and return. And it would turn around and fly back into the cabinet and I'd slam the door closed on it. And then we disassembled the cabinet and there was nothing in it. Wow. So it was really great. And you know, today, nobody's seen that in, in 80 years. Ah. So to be able to see that, and we did that at the Magic Castle, and uh, yeah, there's a video on YouTube of that, That's and cool. they'd never seen anything like it. So Is it, it was hard really to fun.
1: hire, find a ghost that can work around your parameters and your budget?
2: <clears throat> so that trick was the most difficult trick we've ever done, ever, for many, many reasons. And the ghost was the least of it. Uh, getting everything else to work was really, really hard. And uh, and the truth is, is that the Magic Castle, the theater at the Magic Castle, is too small for it. And we had to shoehorn this trick in there. And I mean, when this ghost floated out of the cabinet and over the audience, it was so close to them, they could reach up and touch it. Wow. And sometimes spectators did reach up and touch it. And uh, it was scary for me. But,
1: um, <laughs> and then you have to slap their hands. <laughs> you don't know how yeah. old this is. Don't ruin yeah. it. That's, <laughs> that ghost is so that old. That ghost is so old. <laughs> is that where the idea for the chicken came from? Because you said you um, you produced a chicken out of a volunteers coat is that something that is old or is that your own creation and how hard is it to travel with a chicken
2: we could do a whole hour on traveling with a chicken (laughs) i kind of want today it's it's almost impossible today in fact it's so impossible that i used to have a a technique for smuggling a chicken on and off of an airplane (laughs) and i used it for years and it was what i thought was perfect. This was long before TSA and mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable how I could get this chicken on and off an airplane until I couldn't. And one day my system failed me miserably, and it was horrifying. And I thought, you know what? I'm too old for this. I can't. I can't do this. So I had a company build a, a mechanical chicken for me, <laughs> which is unbelievable, and it was unbelievably expensive. Oh, I can imagine. It allowed me to do my closing routine any place on earth.
1: That's amazing. I
2: imagine it's
0: probably harder to travel with a robot chicken.
2: Well, it should be because this robot chicken is full of little servo motors and batteries, and in the X-ray machine, it, it truly looks like a time bomb. Oh yeah, <laughs> but they never—they've never stopped me. So,
1: can I? Can you recap the conversation you had when you did get caught with a live chicken trying to get it on a plane? <laughs>
2: Yes, I can. It's embedded in my memory. Um, I had the chicken inside of a little cloth bag uh, hung over a pen that was in my shirt pocket, and I had a coat over it. Mm. So the chicken is kind of on my left side, right kind of over my heart. It's a small chicken, so it was kind of there, a little bump, but I would hold a newspaper, in my hand, my left hand, which kind of allowed my arm to be curled up and sort of add more cover over this bump. And all I had to do, then I could put this empty cage, which was in a little shoulder bag on the on the x-ray machine. I had no metal in my pocket, so I walked through the machine, picked up my now empty shoulder bag with had the chicken cage in it. <laughs> And walked away. And then the chicken spent the whole flight in his little cage with plenty of food and plenty of water. And he was as happy as can be. So I was doing that and I walked through and there was a lady there checking us through and she kind of touched my coat and says, what's that? And I said, "Uh, uh, well, that's, that's just a newspaper. She (laughs) said, no, no under there. What's under there. And now I am absolutely terrified because The answer to her question was, "What's under there is a live chicken." (laughs) But I didn't answer her question. Instead, I asked her my own question, and I said, "Do you know what a colostomy bag is?" (laughs) And she said, "Go ahead." And I picked up my chicken cage and walked away. There you go. And that's when I said, "I can't do this anymore."
1: Oh (laughs) man, that means even when getting caught, you have it's foolproof.
2: (laughs) They well, go, that's what we magicians do on stage. We have to be ready to roll with it.
0: Till they go, what do you keep in that cage? And you're like, you don't want to know. <laughs> I thought you were yeah, going to say I a
1: magician it. has to be ready to reveal their Colossary bag.
2: <laughs> I know. If she had said, no, I don't know what it is. Let me see it. I don't know what I would have done. Ah.
1: So wow. what was it like when you went to the company and said, I would like to, you, for you to make me a well, robot chicken?
2: Uh, I'll tell you. Uh, this company to answer that question. The name of this company is called Animal Makers.
1: Ah, there you go.
2: and they make animals for movies and television. And it's unbelievable company, and they make astonishing things. So this was nothing to them.
0: Yeah, uh, they were like, "That's it. You're gonna. That's our. Uh, we'll make you two of them for our minimum." <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, really.
1: I kind of understand you as sort of very sort of well known in the magic world. And I imagine when you go to these magic conferences, people are very excited to meet you. Is there anybody that you have been excited to meet yourself?
2: So, I mean, yeah, that's how it works in the magic world. When you first start going to conventions and you get to see these guys that you've read about in the magazines and you get to see them perform, it's very exciting. It's really, really fun. And, you know, the magic world is a really friendly place. And a convention is a great way to not only see these guys, but to meet them. So I can remember back in the 1970s going to lots of conventions and meeting all my heroes and getting to see them perform and then hanging out with them and becoming friends with them. And it's just really, really great. I don't know. I'm not sure if there are other fields that are like that
1: yeah.
2: uh you know tina plays the harp and i would say the harp world is the absolute opposite of that <laughs> you know everybody it's every person for themselves and they all want the same harp jobs and it's cutthroat business and and magicians they just embrace one another mm. and uh, so it's really great and then as you grow up and grow old uh, you just kind of take the place you become one of those old guys And then the younger generations have read about you in the magazines and see you. And it's fun to meet these young guys and encourage them and and see what they're doing. And and uh, so the wheel just keeps turning.
1: Ah, I'm curious, like you've been around. You've seen you've essentially seen everybody. You've seen, you know, comedians, comedy magicians. You've seen illusionists is your sort of brand of performing is comedy and magic. Did you sort of make that conscious choice to add comedy to your magic or because I know some people do like more serious illusions or don't speak. Right. What about your style of performing? You know, did did you gravitate towards what made you decide? Yeah. So
2: there were, there were, I know there are lots of guys who started it in magic and, and then started doing comedy stuff and then kind of left the magic behind and just, did stand up Mm -hmm. I I never did and never would do that because I just loved magic too much it was too important to me and when I was young I I really did like like the old film comedians I loved W.C. Fields the Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy all those old funny guys really appealed to me so I just kind of gravitated to started doing some comedy magic. And when I was, would go to conventions, there were a lot of guys like that, that did really good magic, but it was really funny. Uh, Jay Marshall, Carol Fox, uh, Bob Lewis and Ginny, um, uh, Billy McComb, Senator Crandall. These are names that were around back then. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, man, that's what I want to do. They did really good magic, but they were really funny and quirky. Ah. So, um, yeah, I started to work on a comedy magic thing, but I didn't want to throw the magic away. I didn't want to just do a gag and get a laugh, and that was that. So my goal was, is during my show, I want people to laugh all the way through it and have a great time. Mm-hmm. But then on the way home, I want them to be talking to each other, and I want them to say, now, wait a minute. How on earth did that guy pull a chicken out of that guy's coat? He was out on stage for 20 minutes, and all of a sudden there's a live chicken in his hand. Where was that chicken for the previous 20 minutes? And I want to just torture them, and I want them to be able to come back and see my act again, exactly the same routine, and still not be able to figure it out because I've got you know i thought this through so well that it's it's pretty much bulletproof yeah so yeah i love the comedy part but i really want the magic to to be uh strong
1: well it's great i love watching all your videos it's it's fantastic to watch now when you heard about the moisture festival uh how, what did it pique your interest had you heard from other yes. people how did you end up in the festival yeah
2: so before i ever heard of the moisture festival like i said tina would very often uh, work in Europe, and I'd, I've done lots of things in Europe, too. So I I loved going to Europe. I'll go to Europe for the, for any reason. <laughs> and over there, it seems like variety theater is really popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in Germany. Mm-hmm. And hanging out at the Winter Garden Theater in Berlin or the Friedrichbau um, or in Berlin w- – that ended up over on the Eastern block when the wall came down, the chameleon, and all of these amazing variety theaters. And I always thought, why don't we have anything like this in America? I mean, a place like this in America wouldn't last two weeks. They just don't get it. So whenever I would go to Europe, I would seek out these little variety places. And, I mean, there's circuses everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I love going to all of them. And then I came home, and it was actually my friend John Carney that said, hey, I'm going to Seattle to do the Moisture Festival. I'm like, what the heck is that? He said, well, it's a variety show. So that was the first time I heard about it. And then Tom Noddy reached out to us and said, hey, you guys should come do this. And we did. And I thought, well, I'll be damned. There is a place in America like those great variety theaters. <laughs> and it runs for more Europe. than two weeks. And, <laughs> it runs four and weeks. It runs for a lot more than two weeks. And it's in Seattle. And it's been there for a very long time. And it's unbelievable. Yeah. I wish you guys would open one of those in every city. Yeah.
1: Well, why don't you think that it, it is something that exists in every city? Why is it more popular in Europe than it is in the United States? Do you have so
2: a- here's what drives me nuts is there'll be a variety show and it might be on TV or it might be somewhere and somebody will review it. Some idiot newspaper reviewer who doesn't know anything about variety entertainment. Mm -hmm. And they think they're being so clever when they said, Oh, this was like a throwback to the old Ed Sullivan show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they say that like it's an insult. Ah. And I want to grab this guy by the collar and say, you stupid idiot. Did you know that Ed Sullivan had the most popular show on television for 20 years? Mm-hmm. And people loved watching plate spinners and magicians and tap dancers and singers. And And you don't even understand that that was like the greatest thing On television in America, and it was variety theater. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and now to you, it's some kind of insult because it's old-fashioned. and I don't know. There have been a couple tries on Broadway where there was a show called Wonder House, where they they had a number of the I mean the greatest variety arts acts working, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and it literally lasted a weekend. Oh
1: God! And
2: just got trashed in the in the press and closed immediately. So. I don't know. There seems to be the slightest heartbeat. I mean, there's a guy in LA, Scott Neary, who does a thing called the booby trap once a a week and it's terrific and people absolutely love it. And it's just a crazy variety show. And, um, you know, it's in a little tiny place on Hollywood Boulevard and it gets a raucous crowd in there, Uh, you know, and then of course it had to close like everything else, but, but, well, yeah, when people find themselves in a place like that, they go, well, this is fantastic. I mean, the Magic Castle is kind of the lone exception. You know, people have, that that don't give two hoots about magic and wouldn't even know where to go see a magician go to the Magic Castle and they go, this is fantastic. Yeah, These people are unbelievable. And the close-up room, these guys doing tricks right under your nose, and then in the bigger theater, they wheeling these things out and people disappearing and floating in midair. And then there's ghosts <laughs> and then touch flying the ghost. <laughs> overhead. I touched the ghost. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I've never given up hope, but it's, it just seems very, very difficult.
1: Well, I think magic as a genre is certainly very accepted. Like I see more, I mean, when I was coming up 20 years ago, I maybe knew a dozen magicians and now I know, I feel like hundreds <laughs> of them, and there has been a sort of an, an explosion in the genre of magic. Yes. C- can you attest to why that happened? Or
2: I trace it all back to Doug Han- Henning opening on Broadway in the Magic. Okay. Show. It was on that day that Magic. When I like I say the day before he opened. I was a complete geek. <laughs> and the day after he opened, I was the coolest guy in school. That's so awesome. Yeah.
1: I wish I had a talent. Hey, like wait that. a
2: minute. <laughs> Which one of you guys saw Tina and I at Magic Camp up here I, uh, in I, LA? I did. Uh Louie did. Louis did? Yeah. So I saw wow. Tina, I yep. don't
0: remember you may have been there, but I don't remember you performing. Oh, okay. I, I still have well, the, I still yeah. have the programs I could go through and look it oh, up. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> you could add it to the museum. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. But the, yeah, we had like Blackstone Jr., Tony Clark.
2: Oh, it was great. Yes. That was David Goodsell's deal. And yes, yeah, that was. was a neat place. And uh, yeah, a great, great thing for kids.
0: Yeah, and I'm excited. So this summer, I haven't been to a magic convention in probably like 10 years. And I, I because... Of, inexcusable. Huh? I have a weird hole in my schedule, so I'm driving to Michigan. I'm going to see you at the Abbott's convention. Oh, nice. No
2: way. Yeah. Oh, my God, Abbott's. So I have this love affair with Abbott's. I performed there the first time in 1970. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I've been back many, many times. Have, so you have you ever been to Abbott's? I've never
0: been, and we should tell a little history of what Abbott's is, just like a bullet point. It's the magic capital of the world, and at one point in town, <laughs> this is what was told to me, is the whole town was dedicated to manufacturing magic props. Wow.
2: Yes, you are absolutely right. It is a tiny little village, population about 1,000, and uh, a guy who was a magician who settled down there named Percy Abbott and Percy Abbott said to Harry Blackstone senior, uh, Hey, when you, when the theaters close in the summer times, which they always did back then, cause there was no air conditioning. He said, you ought to come, uh, come up here to colon Michigan and, uh, get a little cottage and spend the summer. It's great. So Blackstone did and he loved it and he got a house, right? There's two little lakes in this town and he got a house right on the lake And then Percy Abbott said, uh, we should start a magic company and we'll put your name on it. it will be the Blackstone magic company, but I'm, I'm ready to settle down and I'll run the business here. Mm. So they said, okay. And that's what happened. And Percy started manufacturing magic. Well, then they had a huge falling out. And I think what happened was, you know, Percy was trying to build and sell magic. And someone came and said, I want this trick that Harry Blackstone does in his show And Percy said, okay, and he built one. And Blackstone, why on earth are you building tricks in my show Mm. for other magicians? And they didn't speak to each other for years. And so the short-lived Blackstone Magic Company disappeared, but just as quickly, it was turned into the Abbott Magic Company.
1: (laughs) Where he sold (laughs) all Harry Blackstone's tricks.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. And uh, so Percy started building stuff, and then back in the 30s, He uh, In the summer, he'd put up a big tent and invite everybody to come up to Colon for four days of shows and lectures. And he'd set out all the stuff they'd been building all year and sell it all. And and it just became everybody's favorite. It's unlike any other magic convention. You would stay in people's houses or you'd bring a tent and pitch it on the outskirts of town. And uh, there's no hotels there. Oh, wow. So it's, it's amazing that this thing happens and he did it every year. Ah. And back in the seventies, like when I first started doing it, they'd get this town of a thousand people would literally get a thousand magicians to roll into town. It's amazing. I don't know where they put them all. (laughs) And they all put them into the cabinet. (laughs) Yeah. They, they did a big show every night then. And that's where I met a lot of those guys that I mentioned earlier. I met them at the Abbott get-together. So every so often I'll get the itch to, I want to go back to Colin, and so I'll call them and say, hey, I want to do a show. Give me one of your nights, Thursday, Friday. No, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. They have a show. Mm-hmm. So they'll turn one of their nights over to me, and I'll, I'll get a bunch of my buddies together, and we'll go back and do one of the shows. And so that's what we're doing this year. Ah. So it's going to be great. And this year, of course, they didn't have it last year, so people have missed it. And I don't know what happened this year, but this lineup that they have this year is the envy of every other magic convention on Earth. Yeah. I mean, they've got Lance Burton and Matt King, and we're bringing a guy over from England, and Tina and I are going to be there, and Jeff Hobson and Kevin James and... Michael Goudot for the Juggler fans. Hey. And hey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just gonna be a blast.
1: And Louis, that's a so good I'm, one to go
2: to for yeah. the first time in ten oh, years. Bad. <laughs> Absolutely. Big, you couldn't have picked a better one. Nice.
0: I picked the only one that was happening and Coinciding with the gap in my schedule.
2: That's great. That's great. Well, I'll see you at the Legion Hall.
0: <laughs> is that where all the, the action happens? I'm, I'm excited.
2: After the show every night, everybody ends up at the Legion Hall. Ah, super cool. So I have to get my Legion membership
0: going. No.
1: <laughs> well, we want to thank you, Mike, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. We, we really appreciate it. Um, is there anything coming up that you're excited about, maybe a new public publication, a magic, you know, something that you're working on or just retired life.
2: I'll tell you what I've spent the entire pandemic on. Let me see. I'll give you the short version. When I was in college, (laughs) 50 years ago, I wrote a term paper on the history of sawing a lady in half. Nice. And during the ensuing 50 years, I have never stopped collecting information and photographs and posters about that trick. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I said, okay, it's been 50 years that I've collected this stuff. And 2021 is the 100th anniversary of sawing a lady in half. Ah. It started in 1921. So I said, I'm going to finally write the history of this trick. And I spent 16 months doing it. It's the most astonishing story I've ever assembled in my life. The book's at the printer right now. It's Ooh. 440 pages in full color with 350 photographs. Wow. And it's, um, it's really amazing. And I can't wait to get the finished copies. No. I'll have them in August. If this
0: will spoil it, you don't have to answer, but I know there was, at least from when I was reading as a kid, there was controversy as to who the first person to actually do the sawing in half was. Who, right. Who was it? Is that, or is that going to spoil the book?
2: Um, it won't spoil the book. <laughs> that is that is a guy did it in England um, named Percy P.T. Okay. but his was a completely different version, and a guy in America named Horace Golden heard about it and invented his own version, which was kind of a different effect and certainly a different method, Ah. but they were both putting a girl in a box and taking a saw to it. Ah. So it was, it was a huge controversy. It ended up being huge lawsuits. They spent most of 1921 America. And, um, but that, that's part of the story. The story goes on from there. And, uh, it's just unbelievable. So That's, where
0: where right. can people get the book
2: when it's out? Uh, when it's out, they can get it for the time being only for me. Okay. That would be uh, MC, my initials, MC Magic Words. And the book is called Sawing. Very cool.
1: It's in the gift shop of the museum at his house. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's called Sawing. Yep. Well, I would, I'm going to get a copy.
2: I'm excited, yeah.
1: Now, has it always been uh, sawing a woman in half? Has it ever been a sawing a man in half, sawing a dog in half?
2: It has been everything. There is sawing a horse in half. Mm-hmm. There's sawing uh, a man in half. But, yes, it, one of the reasons that this became such an enormous thing that it did become in the early 20s was because of women's suffrage and the mm-hmm. right to vote, and women wanted their, their rights, which they deserved. I mean, in, a couple of years before, during World War I, all the um, men were shipped off to war and all the women were left at home, and they had to go into the factories and make the ships and planes that they needed to fight this war. And so after that was over, they said, we think we should be able to vote. And that was a huge thing, women's suffrage. Yeah, And right as, the, just as they got the right to vote, along comes these two magicians that say, yeah, we're going to put a woman in a box and saw her. <laughs> and it was the perfect trick at the perfect time. And it just became not just the biggest trick in magic. It became the biggest thing in show business. And comedians did routines about sawing a lady and they wrote songs about sawing a lady and they made films exposing sawing a lady and i mean it's just an unbelievable story
1: wow and 50 years working on this wow that's yeah. impressive
2: i I'm that's what's crazy i spent half of the century collecting material for this book
0: wow yeah that's
2: crazy so uh, and it was it was the perfect time to do it i i could get up and there was no place else to go <laughs> so i just kind of spent all day researching this and writing this book
1: well you have to bring those books if you do come back to the moisture festival you got to bring them up and i'm sure some of the listeners would like to pick
2: up some yeah you know what i'm they're actually supposed to be delivered here finished while we're in Colon, michigan at abbott
0: (laughs) you're just missing taking them
2: out there (laughs) but you know what i'll probably have an advanced copy if i got room i'll stick it in my suitcase there you go Ah, very cool very cool
1: well, Mike, we want to thank you so much uh, for joining us. This has been a treat to hear. We I feel like we could do a whole other hour.
2: Yeah. Yes. On Smuggling the Chicken. <laughs> On Smuggling chickens. Chicken. I know. I know you're right. Well, I enjoyed talking with you guys, and I'd love to come back to the festival sometime.
1: Absolutely. Well, we'd love to have you. Thank you so much. Mike Caveney, have, have a great day. Tell Tina we say hey. Yes.
2: <laughs> Tell her we say hey. I hi. sure will. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to the Moisture Festival podcast. If you haven't bought tickets yet for the festival, you can do that at moisturefestival.org. You can also find out information about volunteering or supporting it financially as well. Just click on the contribute button.
1: You can also find Moisture Festival, they are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube if you want to check out more details on any of those social network sites. If you want to find out more information on Louie and I, we do a podcast podcast together that is completely different than this podcast and it is called the odd and off beat podcast and you can find that on any platform that you get your podcasts at if you would like to find out information on louis and i's shows you can do so by visiting louis site which is louis fox with two xscom dot com
0: and matt baker's site comedy stunt dot com spelt the way you would expect it to be spelled yes. And we want to thank all the volunteers, performers, sponsors, donors, board
1: members, producers of the Moisture Festival for helping make this thing happen. Absolutely. A lot of moving parts, and they do a wonderful job at creating a very unique experience that you cannot get anywhere else.
0: Have a great day. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you for listening to Moisture Festival podcast. And stay moist.